Welcome to this week's episode of B2 Boring, the podcast for B2B marketers that is anything but B2Boring. Each week we dive in, talk a little bit about marketing, talk a little bit about what's happening in the space, and most importantly, inspire with creative ideas uh, from our B2B marketing experts on campaigns they've run in the past that were just different, creative, innovative, and un-B2Boring. So this week, really, really pumped to have Zuzana Blau, and I've been working on that, right, from a pronunciation. Beautiful. Zuzana comes to us as the head of marketing and digital demand and campaign management for Nokia's $3.3 billion growth engine, primarily supporting their cloud and network services software business. Um, she works at the intersection of brand and product with a really strong focus on digital channels, content, and marketing innovation. She's been in the space for 20 years, driving growth in both startups and really large enterprise settings. So she knows how to navigate both sides of it and all the unknown through that discovery. Um, and her favorite buzzwords for 2024 are zero-click marketing, all-bound, hero pipeline, and ecosystems. We might dive into a few of those as we jump through. So welcome, welcome, Zuzana. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Awesome. So you, to be 100% transparent, are the first uh, global marketer that I've had on B2Boring, right? Being based out of Europe. So I'd love to dive in a little bit to uh, some of that for our more international audience who's joining us as well, right? So in a global role, what challenges do you face that you think just like North America or US marketers just don't don't face? Right. Well, I don't know if there are many that one region would not face at all, but there are maybe some obvious things like certain topics may be more interesting in some regions than others. That could be because of geopolitical situations or cultural differences. And then there are certain tactics that seem to work better in one region than another, but uh, don't quote me on it because what works for me may not work for you and vice versa. So we obviously... So when I say we run global campaigns, that means that we don't necessarily localize a lot. In some regions, we don't localize at all because telecoms with Nokia, a leader in the telecommunications infrastructure and networking equipment industry. And so in telecoms, really the main language is English, period. But of course, we may do some localizations here and there where especially in Asia, for example, Korea, Japan, those could be areas where it makes sense for us to do translations. We try and be efficient, as efficient as possible, obviously, and localization can cost you a lot, right? Because it's not just translating a single ad, but then you'll have to translate your whole landing page or website, all the content that go into it. So it can be quite the project. But what I can tell you, for example, of course, we had in, the, in 2023, for example, with the energy crisis, we had very specific programs in, say, Europe and Latin America that were all about our network sustainability solutions. But we didn't run those programs in North America or the Middle East because those were not hot topics over there. Or there are certain tactics 
like we do private roundtables, meet the boss sessions that work really well in LATAM or in certain parts of Asia. For some reason, it seems to be easier to get senior executives and decision makers to actually commit uh, to a 90-minute private roundtable than in, say, again, North America or Europe. And probably the reason for that is because those executives in North America and, and Europe are chased a lot more often. They are on a lot more companies' radars. Mm-hmm. Do you find buyers buy a little different in different geographies? Like, do they research different? Do they have different trusted sources? Or is it generally universal? Generally universal, but there may be small nuances Of course, there will be regional publications or regional influencers, the analysts, the publications and the in-betweens that may have influence over buyer decisions in one region, but not in the other. Also, I think cultural differences play a, a role as well. Like you can imagine Asia is extremely hierarchical. So you may have a 28-year-old CTO slash founder in them doing their own research about something, but you would never have that in Asia. They will have their subordinates do research for them, right? So yeah, so that's yeah. that's a big difference. I found her a bit different in Europe as well, too. Like, you know, in Europe, the, the title of head of is more common than you would see in like North America and something versus like VP, yeah. etc. How do you, do you see that as well? Or is that just me? Outside. Yeah, I think titles are funny like that. There are more and more titles and depending on the company, they may mean the exact same thing. You could be a VP somewhere, especially when you're comparing smaller to larger businesses, right? Like a VP or CMO at a startup could have literally zero team members reporting to them, but a VP or CMO at a large organization may have thousands. And For example, my title as head, I've head up a function globally. And then in other companies, head would be way further down the hierarchy. So that can be confusing and challenging when you're trying to figure out your buying group members. Have you seen that meme like with the David Beckham and Victoria Beckham where it says like, I'm the CMO and then... And then he goes, really? And she goes, okay, I'm, I'm just the one person in marketing. Like it's, it's uh, yeah. <laughs> one of my favorite memes, it's from that documentary they had. So yeah, it's uh, yeah. happened to pop up in my feed. So and um, was it Jason Lamkin from Saster who said that the CMO is the CEO anyway? So <laughs> yeah. anyway. To that. So GDPR and other data privacy things popping up globally, right? Yeah. Um, was that... You know, how is that affecting how you're attacking the market globally or is it or not? Right. Uh, Yeah, of course it is. So there are various data and privacy acts outside of GDPR that global marketers need to be aware of the California Act. There's one in Brazil, Singapore, UK, and I'm sure there are many others, but they all influence how we can collect and process and handle or manage personal data that we collect. And for a brand like Nokia, right? Nokia takes obviously takes pride in being a recognized world's most ethical companies year over year. So non-compliance is out of question. So we need to be on top of our game and we need to understand these and there are compliance officers within the within our our company that even within marketing that we can go to to uh, make sure we are always updated on the latest I find it funny that I sometimes 
just reading some LinkedIn posts or videos from self-proclaimed influencers where they give advice on things like why spend money on acquiring contacts when you can just use Zoom info. That is dangerous. It may be right in maybe the US or some certain parts of the US. And I'm sure, Chris, you'll have an opinion about that. But as a global marketer, definitely not. No, I cannot just export a list of contacts from Zoom Info, put it in my automation platform and start spamming them. No way. So, And there's also the question you brought up, Nokia's level of like, just because you can, does it mean necessarily that you should? Right. Oh, that's, sure. that's also right. Like the thing that's always gotten me a bit. And, and again, the quote unquote influencer segment is that like the minimum viable thing that you have to do to remain legal or compliant shouldn't be the threshold. Right. And and I believe that like I love that whether you're North America, Europe. Right. Like getting that agreement. Right. Getting that handshake that says, hey, you gave me something that I wanted, a piece of content or something. And in exchange, I'm going to give you my email address and my phone number and you can market to me, right? That agreement is an important one. And I think it's important on both sides of the fence. As a, a buyer, right, you're giving your contact information and that's a fair trade. But as a B2B marketer, we have to hold our side up of that equation. And once they, once we have that agreement, we have to bring the goods, good content. Yeah good quality, good, and not just pass that person over to sales to get spammed, right? Like, mm. so I think that's the, I read a lot about, like, the tactic is broke, like, this doesn't work, right? The content syndication yeah. doesn't work, right? Well, like, there's B2B marketers at about a $500 million annual scale who make it work really, really well. And that's because- Yeah, it, it only doesn't work if you're not using it right. So you have to have the right objectives and goals and understand what it can help you with. And if you just use a single asset download as a lead and sending it to your sales department, of course, no, it, it won't work properly. But if you use it well, and you understand its limitations and where it can really help you, then it'll work. It's really, and so, it's, it's really hard to communicate to your buyer these days. There's so many different places and the, the cost to reach them in those places is only going up, right? Get, hitting them on social is only getting more expensive. Finding them on searches is only getting more expensive now that AI and people are searching in different places. So the, I've always loved the gated content the syndication plan, like building that marketable database via email is almost like, like a, it's like a community that you've built. It's not an actual yeah. community like Pavilion, but it's, it's a little community that you can exchange ideas back and forth with. And if you do it well, you bring them really quality content. People will remember when I need this networking services or equipment, or I, I'm thinking Nokia because Susanna brought me so much great content that <laughs> she's the first person that I remember. But it's really interesting. It's, I mean, and let's be, I can also tell you as well, like as well as I do that, like companies put spam traps into Zoom info and other platforms like that, right? So, and they do that purposely. So you don't go out and buy 23,000 contacts, 17 cents a record, plop them into an automation right. system and just blast the, blast the spam cannon out. So. Exactly. And yeah, I, I fully agree. I feel like B2B inflation is a real thing. It definitely takes a lot more of everything to win. More, more channels, more touch points, more contacts, more 
content, more ad fatigue. You have to be much better at targeting. Your consumers are much more demanding. And all of this is leading to an increasing amount of content, different formats, different platforms, different channels, and they all need to be produced faster and more cheaply than ever before. So it, it, it can be very daunting and it is definitely hard to get seen out there for sure. It's the, the, the technology advances of automation and AI are almost causing, and again, this is my, are almost causing more of a challenge than the solution right? Because it's so easy to automate an email sequence. And now with AI, it's it's even easier to automate the whole flow, right? Where I've seen, mm -hmm. some, I mean, some vendors are working on tech that where if a lead hits your system, it'll send it into an automated AI mm -hmm. flow, and it'll just start chatting with them and all yeah. of that, right? Like, but it's so much content. And again, the quality dips because it's automated or because it's AI based that now your buyer's inbox is just exploded. Right? That's exactly why I always say that good marketing, regardless of advances in technology and tools and new shiny things, which I always love, like I love to test new things and try and iterate and everything, but you have to go back to the basics. People buy from brands that are, they know, love and trust. And so in order for you to get them to know, love and trust you, you really only have to do one thing. Well, okay, um, you have to be nice. That's a really good strategy, but show up consistently with content, free content. Stop. In my world, I don't like to gate content unless I really have to. So showing up consistently with free content that informs, educates, or entertains. So in short, creates value for them and creates memorable experiences that's even better b2b brands and i'm not gonna lie nokia we suffer from this as well we are usually not as great at creating super edutaining entertaining content that will leave a lasting impression and create brand recall right that's all we really want in marketing how do i create a lasting impression impression evoke emotions make sure they'll remember me when the time comes when they are ready to buy there are stats about the fact that at any given time there is probably about three to five percent of your target market or icp in market yeah. which means that if you're only targeting those then you're going to be missing out on the other 95 ish percent of buyers that could buy from you in the future shorter longer term future and so this is when building demand comes into the picture. Even if they're not ready to buy today, if you're going to leave lasting impressions on them, and if you're going to inform and educate and entertain them, they'll remember when the time comes. And, and that aggregate cost of acquisition is lower, right? If you- Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Attack the, people, you attack people before they're ready to buy. Your right. IP, you know, they'll eventually have a problem. If yeah. you can get in front of them cost effectively early, right? Sure. Or trying to capture at the bottom of the funnel where your price is 5X, right? Right. But that it costs about 50% more today to acquire a customer than it did five years ago. So it, it yeah. So the better you are at creating demand around you and building awareness about around you, the cheaper it will be in the long run to convert yeah. them. Yeah, keyword long run, right? Like really great marketing is a is a long game, right? The moves you're playing now, especially in some cases if you have long sales cycles, come into come into fruition 
nine to 12 months from now, right? And, and unfortunately, yeah. most executives don't see the loan, right? It's hard to sit down in front of the executive and be like, hey, I need 500K and I'm going to get you 2 million, but I'm not going to get it to you tomorrow. I'm going to get it to you early 2025, right? Like, and setting yeah. expectations. But speaking of, you mentioned all the, how the company has to have like that edutainment factor and all that, but I'm seeing a trend to where it's not necessarily just the company, but the employees of the company. And you're a great example, right? Your social media presence. There are a ton of people who are connecting Zuzana and <laughs> great content, and then thus Nokia and great content, right? So, and and as a marketer, you're it's fairly rare, right? You would think that marketers would be the first standing up on social media to be to have these personal brands, and it's fairly rare. Why? Have you decided to be active and kind of jump in that uh, kind of ahead of your peers? Great question. I guess I've always been opinionated, but so I tried to embark on the road of content creation a couple of times in my, what, 17 years on LinkedIn now. I, wow, LinkedIn's been around for a while, but I was never consistent enough or lasted long enough. It takes, I'm not going to lie, it takes a lot of effort and time to create content constantly. And so I come from a startup SMB kind of background before I joined Nokia, right? And that's, it's when I joined Nokia uh, 2016. So now eight years ago, it's when I realized what you just said, that there weren't many voices at all for marketers like me in B2B, especially in large matrix B2B organizations, especially women. So now there are plenty of B2B SaaS marketing influencers, but usually, you, and they give excellent advice, but a lot of that advice is really hard to interpret and understand for, for marketers who are working in really highly complex, like hundreds of product solutions, high, super high deal value, really mainly sales-driven organizations. It's really hard for us to actually implement uh, most of those devices, even if they sound amazing and your gut knows that they are right. You just can't. So the more and more I talked to vendors and other marketers after I joined Nokia, the more I realized there was a gap. And so I started, I guess, being more intentional, developing my voice about five, six years ago, really understanding what are the main challenges. And I started getting invited to events and webinars, but then boom, COVID happened. And so it all fell back. And then quite frankly, at, it was at the end of 2022, I, out of the blue, I got not, it was a peer nominated award that I won for future tech B2B CMO, which I'm still extremely honored about. But that's when I really realized that what I had to say was valuable enough for others to actually want to hear more. And this is when I promised myself, okay, I will try to stay consistent this time. And I will do this at least for a year. I'll try. Is it gonna give me like pleasure to do this at least for one year? So we are now on month eight. <laughs> it's definitely giving me pleasure. I've been lucky to meet a lot, a lot more people and had amazing conversations, which all makes me better at what I do. I would have never had the chance to learn from the people that I've been able to learn from had I not started this. So yeah, it's very I'm cool. Really I, I agree. It's one of my favorite parts. The pot, yeah, people have like, the podcast, it just, I've been on a ton. I have them. And it's just great to just meet people and see different perspectives and talk to different folks and all of that. So awesome. Well, we've reached the big moment of the podcast, right? We're talking unbeatable, right? Tell us about a campaign over any part of your career that you ran 
that was unboring. How was it unboring? You know, was it successful? Was it a win? All of the good stuff. And we've had both. We've had like, we've had big wins and we've had big flops on Beat of Boring. So it's okay to have both because I think that the audience can learn from either way. So yeah. what do you say to you? I One that I'm really p- proud of for sure is when I was uh, asked to help us enter, uh, this is at Nokia, enter the web scalers market. So these are the companies, the hyperscalers and the web scalers that run their business on the internet and have huge networking needs. So you can think of the the most obvious, the Amazons, the Googles, the, the, the Metas and Apples, but also all your social media companies, the streaming providers, the Netflixes, the Spotify's, the Ubers, the data center companies and others. And that was a brand new market for us. And the average Nokia buyer before that was a 55 plus white man in on the C-suite who is used to making decisions in a very specific sort of way. We know this person, but at these web scalers, the decision makers are a very different breed. It's what I mentioned earlier, like a founder CTO at a company like this, at a unicorn who's 28 years old, for example, they have very different content consumption habit. They will not fill out a form. They will not answer emails from sales. They will not pick up the phone. They won't fill out forms again. So how do you actually get through to them? So we had to find a way to market to those that invented the bingeable on-demand world. Like, ooh, that was a huge challenge. And so what we did was we were we kind of wanted to find a platform that would let us help accelerate their self-education phase because that's pretty much everybody wants to be able to be left alone. Let me do my own research. We know that about 70, 80% of the buyer journey today is done on your own work in your office or at home. You do your own research. You look up all the different review sites, even if you just want to buy a gadget, but imagine buying a car or a really expensive watch, you'll do your research. Of course, you'll do the same when it's a multi-million dollar business or even billion. So our goal was to find a way to actually really help accelerate that self-education phase for them without any gate and provide bingeable content experiences. And so we partnered with a company called Path Factory. They have this content delivery and intelligence platform, which I love. And I think I've been a loud enough advocate for for uh, ever since, really, which really allows you to build like playlists like content tracks and then you are able to serve forms when only when the time comes based on their engagement. So you can, for example, set up time and say, I only want to show serve my form if they spend at least 20 minutes or if they spent enough time on at least three of my assets or whatever, you can customize your rules. And so that's how we started actually. And that's how we started understanding which accounts, which were the companies that were on our pages, spending more time with our content specifically and what kind of content, what stages of the funnel were they more top or bottom of the funnel content and that's how we were able to also like pull them into nurture streams if we if we had their contact information this was really easy to share with sales they were very eagle i mean there are multiple types i mean at least two types of salespeople: the farmers and the hunters i know this best i'm not gonna talk about this but the point is in web scale in a new market entry you really need hunters so they all they wanted was just show me a sign 
that right. someone is actually reading about us. They are on our pages, they are on our content, and this allowed us to do that. So I was able to build a really great relationship with sales throughout this. We were able to score the accounts, the people that were on our content, understanding their priorities topic-wise and funnel stage-wise and follow-up accordingly. So that made our life really a lot easier and it was a big success. I think you hit the nail on the head, the connection to sales, right? And again, their sellers are sales were are special little snowflakes, right? And they believe that their time is magical, right? And Mark, all marketing has to do is be, create that belief, right? And it can be multiple different ways, right? Like, but again, just if I'm a seller and someone says this person spent X amount of time looking at this, right? Like that's belief, right? Like that. That's why things like like live events still and small, you know, micro events and even webinars per se, right? The act of someone showing up to a webinar, listening to it in market, yeah. right? it that's creates intent that. In but I think that's that's the real connection between sales and marketing, right? Every time, every guest I've had when they've talked about the disconnect between sales and market, it's always that belief that yeah. is the lead worth me calling, right? And again, I think sales needs to do a bit better job of but you're right. But I also think marketing needs to do a better job in a sense that it is some kind of intent when someone decides to register or show up for a webinar, but you have to be able to kind of separate intent to learn from intent to buy. Right. So there are a lot of people that just want to learn and educate themselves to be better at their jobs, but they are not going to be buying from you at least for a while. And so back to this campaign, what was really amazing is that we were able to use this across all the channels, all the tactics, because for all your content tracks, you have a single link. So for example, I had a webinar, great, I put that link, you know, or multiple links. And then I was able to track who actually cared enough to go and engage some more. Same uh, with physical events. And I was able to do this for my partners, give them personalized, customized tracks with their logo on them. So it's a tool, yes, but it made our job easier and it made the content experience and the education phase a lot more seamless for our customers or prospects. And that's exactly what we wanted. How do we enable them? This was really easy. Awesome. I mean, key takeaway for me there, and a nail on the head, right? Intent to learn versus intent to buy, right? Especially, I have a lot of conversations about quote unquote intent data. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of chatter in the B2B marketing and sales space about it right now. And I think like you just nailed, hit the nail on the absolute head. Most of the intent, quote unquote, in the space does a great job of capturing people who have intent to learn, right? There are very few spots. And one of my goals here at MRP is to build an engine that truly does identify intent to purchase over different trending. And and. Again, it can be done. There's ways to do it, but I think that's a great separator. And I do believe I'm going to steal that. So I'm just <laughs> going to let you know ahead of time, right? So awesome. So thank you so much for joining. It's been really, really awesome. I mean, I think we're going to have to have you on again to talk about some of those buzzwords like hero pipeline and all of that. So if I hit you up in the next couple of months to, to dive in for part two, don't be shy. You got uh, it. So where can our guests find you? On I know you have LinkedIn. I know you have a newsletter. Where's the, where's the best place to find you? It's definitely LinkedIn. And I'm the only one with my name on LinkedIn. So you can't miss me. And please do connect. I love connecting with new people and sharing our views and visions and goals and best practices. So 
Great. Well, can everybody connect to uh, Zuzana at LinkedIn? And again, I think just giving a search for Zuzana Blau should pop up the exact right person. I promise yeah. you. For those of you listening on Spotify, Apple, wherever you're listening to, you know, drop us a five-star review. The more reviews that we have positive, the more people searching for B2B marketing podcasts we're popping up for and we're growing our user base pretty frequently. You can reach MRP at MRPFD.com. You can reach me at Christopher Rack on LinkedIn as well, amongst multiple different social channels on that side. So thank you again for joining. Thanks for our guests for being. Thanks for our listeners for joining again. Till next time. I appreciate everybody's time. Thank you again, Susanna. Amazing. Thank you for having me. See you soon, I hope. <laughs> and we are... <laughs>